I would suggest that the Russian military was quite adaptable beforehand, but it was adaptable in a really narrow part of the force. And that's all a reactive process. I don't see in the Russian military that horizon scanning driving adaptation. So what you're actually seeing is the development of things like a firing carousel between Russian guns. You are seeing the integration of uh, infantry mortars with heavier howitzers um, and, and a much more slick process of fire. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, editorial director at MWI, and I'm joined on this episode by Dr. Jack Watling. He is a senior research fellow for land warfare at the Royal United Services Institute, and he is also the author of a fascinating recently published report on how Russian forces have adapted tactically over the course of the war in Ukraine. In many ways, the war has not gone well for the Russian military, and that has forced it to adapt doing things differently, in some cases very differently, than the tactics enshrined in Russian military doctrine. From the organization of infantry forces, to improving integration between drones and artillery, to reducing the detectability of tanks, Dr. Watling describes the specific adaptations on display by Russian forces. He also describes the practical processes by which these adaptations actually take place, and explains what this means for Ukraine, and from a policy perspective, what it means for Ukraine's international supporters. Before we get to the discussion, as always, a couple quick notes. First, if you're not yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Dr. Jack Watley. Jack, thanks so much for coming on the MWI podcast. Uh, it's good to be back. So you and a colleague of yours at Rusi, Nick Reynolds, um, authored a report that was published quite recently that I found really fascinating. It essentially traces how Russian forces have adapted their tactics uh, during the course of the war in Ukraine. And I invited you on the podcast, to, you know, I guess because I think listeners will really appreciate hearing about the report and, and hearing your insights on the subject. Uh, I will also make sure, uh, by the way, that there's a link to it in the podcast description. I think, you know, I guess I think the bulk of this discussion is going to sort of center on the specific ways that Russian forces are adapting that you highlight in the report. But, you know, I guess to kind of lay the foundation for that discussion, I'd like to ask, you know, I guess what is driving adaptation? Um, you know, Russia has this this body of military doctrine, like most military forces do, which in theory guides the way you fight. This is the role of doctrine. And if you expect to fight a certain way, you've also been training that way. So it's 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 really not a small thing to decide to do something different than what your doctrine says, especially if it is, you know, I guess a particularly dramatic departure uh, from the doctrine, or or if it occurs at scale across the board, as opposed to uh, as opposed to you know isolated cases driven by unique circumstances. Um, but that's in many ways what Russia has done. So I think the big question, again, to sort of kick off this discussion, is why. So uh, I, I've had the privilege of working with the Ukrainian military every other month throughout the conflict uh, and before as well. Uh, and a lot of that time, what I've been doing with them is trying to identify operational and tactical challenges that they are anticipating and then forming colleagues outside of Ukraine about 
options for overcoming those and trying to make sure that with the limited bandwidth for support that can be provided, we, we focus on the right things. Um, and what I had been observing over the last few months was a real divergence in the narrative that I was being uh, confronted with outside of Ukraine versus the lived experience that I was having inside the country. Um, the narrative was essentially that the Russian army is terrible at everything, completely incompetent, finished as an organization, you know, brittle, inevitably about to fall over, dying in droves. Um, and there's grains of truth to all of that, right? The Russian military is not performing like a slick and efficient organization in a lot of areas, and it is massively underperforming its potential. But at the same time, there are elements of the Ukraine of the Russian system that have proven highly effective, um, that have become more effective over the course of the conflict. And there are things that the Russians do that might not be optimal, but they still create very, very hard tactical challenges for the Ukrainian military. And the cost of those challenges is paid in lives, in lots and lots of lives. You know, we, we can't talk about the details of Ukrainian casualties, but they are severe, you know, as, as you would expect in any major conflict. And so the aim of this report was to try and calibrate people's expectations, but also to make people understand that while the defeat of the Russian military is possible in Ukraine, it is only possible through a great deal of very, very technical uh, application of military capability and sacrifice and cost, and to make sure that people bound their expectations appropriately in light of that challenge. So before we get into some of the, um, the some of the specific adaptations that you draw our attention to in the report, you know, before the invasion last February, I'm not sure many people would have characterized the Russian military as highly adaptable, at least not Russian conventional forces. At the same time, you know, I'm, I'm, I think the same probably could have easily been said about the Ukrainian military before the war, which means that, you know, to some extent on both sides of this conflict, adaptation, if it was going to happen, was going to have to happen under fire. And yet it has. And, and granted, there's always a risk when we sort of simplify, you know, complicated things like a major conventional war down into narratives. But, but the narrative that has sort of taken shape certainly does account for, um, or, you know, yeah, account for maybe a larger degree of innovation among Ukrainian forces than might have been expected. Uh, based on your report, it sounds like, you know, that's also true of their counterparts among Russian forces specifically with respect to Russia, is it, you know, is it a matter of, you know, they're having developed the capacity to adapt under fire over the past 15 months? Or, you know, I guess, did that, did that exist? Did that capacity exist prior to the invasion? And we, you know, in the community of people who watch these things and make assessments about them, did we underestimate it? I would suggest that the Russian military was quite adaptable beforehand, but it was adaptable in a really narrow part of the force, which was a much more highly trained silo of personnel that had engaged in complex operations in Syria and so forth, and had a wide range of lessons. Um, the concept of employment that the Russian military uh, used in Ukraine exposed that echelon to massive risk, and they were ex they suffered disproportionate attrition. Um, then what the Russians did was they took their trainers because they'd lost the, the echelon of like junior leaders who knew their stuff from a lot of the training areas in the military and they threw those in as replacements. 
And so what they had managed to do was both lose the people that had the, the technical knowledge to be able to solve problems uh, and the combat experience to solve problems. And they had then fixed the people who were responsible for implementing that learning uh, into combat positions. And the combination of those two things meant that they, they really struggled. They really struggled to get good information back and they really struggled to make the information they obtained actually you know, disseminate it across the force. Um, however, the Russians do have quite a systematic process for, ident and it's a quite a centralized process, for identifying problems, solutions, and then instructions. And this is what we're seeing them do. Um, these kind of studies by various military scientists at technical institutes, usually colonels, who come forward and sometimes it's as, as specific as you are misusing the book system for trying to engage this kind of target. You need to change your approach to this and this and this and lay it down like this. And you know this is the order in which you need to flick the switches. And sometimes you see the the colored printouts of the control panels in, in books with like different parts of the system highlighted and the order in which you need to press them. So that's the kind of level of um, command-driven adaptation that you sometimes see. Very often it's the production of new manuals. Um, and then you're also seeing people in the field making things up as they go along. It's just it doesn't necessarily disseminate backwards. Um, but the interesting thing about that process is it's very reactive. It's we're doing what we're doing. What we're doing is not working. How do we change what we're doing? Okay, now we're going to try this new thing. And that's all a reactive process. The experience I've had with the Ukrainian military is that Ukrainian military culture was quite Soviet when it came to this stuff. Um, but there was a cadre of personnel who had seen how to operate differently, who had deployed with uh, Western forces in Iraq and, and at Sierra Leone and various other places, had started to do a lot of operations with NATO. Um, and so you did have a cadre of officers who were promoted very quickly who were much more flexible in their thinking. That was that was one thing. The second thing was Ukrainians mobilized their civilian population who didn't have Ukrainian military culture as the dominant culture within their approach. And those individuals were from the commercial sector, from elsewhere, and they had a much more problem-centric uh, framework of, of adaptation. And they didn't have the hangover of believing that you had to do it a certain way. And so that led to a very costly process of trial and error, which which you know, led to very high losses in a lot of units, but it also meant that they found things that worked. Um, but the third thing I would suggest is that going back to that experience that I've had over the last few months, almost all the conversations I've been having with the Ukrainians have been about anticipating the next problem and how we get after solving that, which is not something that I'm seeing in the Russian military. So to give you an example, when I was in Ukraine in April of 2022, one month into the conflict, I sat down with Ukrainian military intelligence and we were discussing the problem sets necessary to conduct offensive operations, right? Uh, and we were specifically talking about offensive operations in September. Um, I don't see in the Russian military that horizon scanning driving adaptation preemptively. And, and that's a really an area where the Ukrainians very clearly have a competitive advantage. So given the facts of, of uh, Ukrainian mobilization, which incorporated civil society and civilian populations, you know, that sort of indicates a, a degree of bottom-up innovation. Um, what you just described among Russians was, was I, I think, much more of a top-down process. So has, I guess my question is, has Russia developed the ability for, you know, say, a unit to try something new? And, and if it works, communicate it horizontally across formations. 
you see quite a lot of vertical lessons learning. So within Wagner, you will see adaptation and it goes up. Uh, within VDV units, you will see tactical adaptation and then it, it goes up the chain. What it very rarely does is goes across boundary to the line infantry unit that's next door or the naval infantry unit that's on the other side. Um, until you get to about combined arms army level and then it gets noticed by the central learning process and something gets written and disseminated and, and then it starts moving sideways. So lateral movement of knowledge is, is quite high in the Russian military. Um, within specific sectors and formations and, and detachment groups, you do see that process of bottom-driven innovation adaptation. Which, which inter interestingly, is, is one of the reasons why the VKS, the, the Russian Aerospace Forces, have actually been one of the, the most adaptable, adaptive services um, and Russian components, because their force generation and mission planning process is already much more centralized. So there was much less gap and much less requirement for lateral movement of information um, between their J3 function and their execution and their J5 function. So I want to dig into some of the specific examples of adaptation that you uh, that you highlighted in the report. The first one that really jumped out at me uh, has to do with infantry units. You know, Russian ground forces are really built around battalion tactical groups. These are these are combined arms organizations, and 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 the idea behind combined arms is that by combining infantry with armor and artillery and engineers, the whole becomes uh, becomes greater than the sum of its parts. But you know, what you identified was that in some senses, the battalion tactical group, this fundamental organization in Russian ground forces has sort of been shed, uh, you know, to some extent, and infantry forces have kind of been stratified into some of these, I guess, functions is maybe the best way to describe it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, so there were a few problems with the BTG. Uh, number one was, if you took away the conscripts, they didn't have enough infantry in them. So it wasn't; it didn't have some core elements of the combined arms structure. The second was you didn't have enough junior officers who could plan uh, with the span of capability that a BTG was given, and that led to quite poor execution of combined arms activity. Um, and the third third issue was that the Russians wanted to mass effect, uh, and to do that they needed to centralize things like fires. And so even in June of last year, we were seeing artillery being pulled away from infantry maneuver units and reallocated to what were being called artillery tactical groups. Um, we've now seen an, not so much a, a centralization of um, fires into ATGs, but you have the artillery group assigned to the sector commander, and then artillery made organic to mission-specific units that are generated at the front. And those mission-specific units are often called storm detachments or assault detachments. Um, or tactical groups, uh, but they are usually battalion size groupings, um, which will have a few different kinds of capabilities within them. One of them will be a, a heavy mortar baseline. Uh, they will have an ISR baseline, which will include EW and uh, UAVs. Um, higher headquarters will fly UAVs over them as well. And then of the infantry units, they will usually have dedicated a core of dedicated assault troops who have an esprit de corps to be very aggressive and, and good equipment for it. Um, they will have line infantry troops that they use for kind of holding positions, usually in platoon-sized elements, and, and they will do a lot of the digging and uh, sort of consolidation of ground captured. Um, you'll have specialist units of snipers and support weapons, and they often group their support weapons into these mobile reserves who can either... Um, bring down very heavy fire onto Ukrainian 
assault units or uh, more often sneak up and start to knock down and attrit uh, defensive positions once they're identified. And the main means of identification or determining whether you want to assault or just fix the enemy is to use what we describe in the report as disposable infantry. You'll be surprised to know that that's not what the Russians call them, but nonetheless, um, these are essentially mobilized convicts or untrained mobilized personnel who are usually given amphetamines uh, and sent forward to skirmish. And it's a form of reconnaissance by blundering, essentially. So they go forward, they test what they run into. If they run into something, they start getting into a firefight. Um, but what they force is two things. One, the continual expenditure of um, Ukrainian human capacity because their their defenders, defensive positions have to continually skirmish and displace so that they're not then destroyed when they, when they uh, illuminate. Um, two effects. One is sometimes they get caught by snipers and other than artillery because they've been fixed in a position and therefore it has an attrition effect. The other effect is that because the personnel get very tired, they can't leave the line, the Ukrainians have to do a troop rotation quite regularly. And when they do the troop rotation, that's when the Russians can catch them with artillery. So it does set up a series of tactical dilemmas. Or these disposable troops make significant progress um, because there just isn't there isn't a, a concentration of Ukrainian troops on that sector, in which case they found a seam that can be prioritized for assault and they'll try and turn the flank of adjacent formations. So there is a logic to it, but it is extremely callous. You mentioned that uh, that artillery capabilities have been centralized uh, to a certain degree, and, and I guess I'm curious, you know, is that adaptation or is it maybe reverting to a cultural preference for mass that we often attribute to Soviet forces and, and maybe assume has carried over into uh, Russian military culture? It's interesting, actually. The, the development of Russian artillery during the conflict it initially was to mass it. Um, and so we were seeing, for example, counter-battery regiment missions going in occasionally, um, or not so occasionally even. Um, what the Russians concluded after uh, July of last year was that that wasn't really viable given the threat to logistics. You just couldn't put enough ammunition around the guns to be able to, and protect them from HIMARS to be able to execute in that way. Um, and this is a good example of where their logistics doctrine, which hadn't been updated since the 1970s, really, um, including the distance and planning assumptions, was suddenly found not fit for purpose. Uh, and so they had to adapt from their doctrine. Um, now what you find is much more responsive and, and interlinked kill chains or reconnaissance fire circuits, as they call them, um, between UAVs that are giving organic feeds to the to the artillery unit so that the artillery unit can engage directly um, but also to the command post and the command post can then either assign fires or reinforce fires with their own uh, fires units that don't have that organic artillery feed um, and most of that's being coordinated to the Stradets C2 system um, so what you're actually seeing is the development of things like a firing carousel between Russian guns you are seeing the integration of uh, infantry mortars with heavier howitzers um, and, and a much more slick process of fire. Um, you know, Russian counter-battery fire missions now come in within two minutes. That's, that's the timeline. Um, so you have to fire and displace. Uh, and in that sense, actually, they've moved away from massing their guns. They, they, they mass them in terms of who's co in command of them, but actually they are free to engage based on their own ISR. 
two minutes, you said. They're capable of, of launching counter-battery fire in two minutes. How much of an improvement is that compared to early in the war? Early in the war, it was between five and 20 minutes, depending on context. Oh, wow. So, so you described the integration of UAVs with artillery. What level is that happening at? Um, so we're usually seeing it at the the tactical group commander, which I guess is battalion commander, although they're not. It's not a fighting battalion. Um, but the feed will simultaneously be available to the uh, joint force commander, uh, who will be essentially a, a divisional commander. And uh, that headquarters will have its own longer range UAVs. And if it detects points of interest off those feeds at the tactical level, it will start converging its own collection to do fire correction for, for heavier guns. Um, and that's where you start getting into pretty significant volumes of, of artillery fire or even the allocation of a mission to something like uh, an attack aviation unit with lobbed S8s, for example. Um, there's also electronic baselines that are being used at that point to do um, kind of anticipatory planning for, for artillery engagements. Um, so the other thing that's worth noting is that the Russians still don't really have an approach to mission command. Instead, what you tend to find is the tactical group commander, battalion commander, um, in their CP with their UAVs up, watching their own people as well, and then conducting combat management, so direction of tactical activity based on their obs live observation of the fight. Is that also significant? You know, early in the war, one of the major things that, that stuck out was how many Russian general officers were being killed. I mean, it, it was it was a lot. And and I guess one of the interpretations of that uh, was that, you know, it's a very top-heavy organizational structure in which a Russian general officer might be, might be expected to be much farther forward directing, you know, tactical actions than, say, his counterpart in a U.S. or U.K. military force. Is that is that consolidation of ISR, uh, and I should say in case any listeners aren't familiar with it, ISR is is obviously it's intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. But is that consolidation of ISR capabilities and you know artillery firing authority at the battalion tactical group level indicative of a sort of maybe cultural adaptation in terms of really pushing down authorities and responsibilities? No, um, no. In fact, we just saw a video of General Le Pen, the, the head of Russian ground forces, stomping around with a B, uh, BMP column in Belgorod, like directing people on the ground, uh, propaganda material. But but actually, if that's the expectation of what the commander of ground forces should be doing, then then that's the message that he's giving to his personnel, right? What what you're seeing is headquarters that are 120 clicks back, plugged into the civilian um, telecommunication system going to brigade CPs, then being plugged into field cables that allow them to get pretty real-time feeds of what's happening much further forward. Um, the person who has ascribed the mission and given all of the organic assets, a bit like in the BTG concept, is free to apply those assets as they want, right? So that tactical group commander, if they have EW under command, can, can give orders to that EW unit. They don't need to refer for permission, and they will just employ those capabilities. At the same time, the way that that battalion commander is running their, their units is, as I say, they are keeping a live feed of what's going on and they are communicating and giving very specific instructions to everybody. And that's happening from higher up as well. Um, so you have those higher headquarters applying effects in support of operations as they see the opportunity for their own capability to be uh, relevant to the fight, um, but also often reaching down and directing things. 
Um, so, so there is quite a long screwdriver in the Russian system. Um, having said that, it, the way that it's working at the moment is uh, sort of multiple concentric bands so that if you are the target sector, you have all of these echelons looking at you if you're on the Ukrainian side. I want to shift gear to armor because that's another, I think, um, you know, another one of the major points on which which the story of this war uh seems to have hinged, right? While Russia was losing tanks at an exceptionally rapid rate, Ukraine was actually increasing its tank stocks because it was capturing Russian tanks and getting new ones from its international supporters. Given the, you know, the massive attrition of Russian tanks, especially early in the war, how has the, um, you know, how has the Russian use of its armored platforms changed? It's always been this, speaking of that kind of dichotomy between narrative and, and experience, uh, and laws, okay, you can fire them very quickly and drop them and, and get out of there. Um, there are some other ATGM systems which which offer a similar capability. But generally speaking, if you talk to Ukrainian ATGM operators about the experience of trying to fight armor, it is terrifying. Uh, and there, there are plenty of failed engagements. Um, the other thing I would flag is that throughout this conflict, when tanks show up, that is your problem. If you're infantry, you know, like some, that comes the prop, top of the priority stack. Now, whether you are able to deal with that or not, um, and whether the enemy is able to leverage the prioritization problem that they impose on the unit through the presence of armor uh, has often not materialized because of Russia's inability to employ that capability properly and because of a lack of infantry to follow up or will of infantry to, to move up with tanks quickly. So um, armor has underperformed its potential. But it, it still is a pretty major shaping effect on the battlefield. At the moment, the fighting is much more static. Neither side has the mass, and they, what they don't have is the skilled infantry to be able to, uh, on the front line, I mean, um, to be able to do major penetrations in depth. And so tanks are largely being used in a fire support role. But in that role, they are very, very useful and they're very dangerous because they have good optics and sensors. They will not be damaged or destroyed by most classes of weapons. And so they can sit out and either be talked onto targets or find targets themselves with their sensors um, and then knock them out. Or they can do things like uh, explosive, rapid explosive breaching of buildings in order to enable assaults into buildings um, from significant range, but enabling the infantry to maneuver. So tanks have a very significant shaping effect on the battle although their employment is probably more equivalent to assault guns at the moment, rather than as breakthrough heavy armor that is penetrating and maneuvering live. Um, there are other bits of the combined arm system, which neither side has very good capability in that limits the ability to do that. Uh, a classic example being uh, breaching of minefields. Right? Neither side has heavily protected breaching equipment that they can employ to be able to make the kinds of gaps that you would need to then get armor through. So we're seeing a shift in the doctrinal emphasis of how armor is employed, but it's still, it, it makes its presence felt. Given the number of tanks that, uh, that Russia lost has, has, you know, have Russian forces changed their tactics in terms of reducing detectability and increasing survivability? Yeah, significantly. Um, I mean, one of them, as I say, is not using them in these kinds of high-risk breakthrough operations, but they are also uh, starting to use the multi-spectral camouflage that they developed for the T-90 and putting it on other vehicles. 
Um, it's quite effective, uh, especially at longer ranges. It really reduces the signature. Um, there are also some TTP changes in terms of favoring particular times of day to reduce detectability in, in uh, thermal uh, against thermal capability. Um, and they've made some modification to things like the engine deck to change the signature of the vehicle, um, which combined with engaging at between 1.8 and 2.5 kilometers from targets um, is quite, it's significantly reducing the PK of ATGMs. Um, so you can still reach out and poke vehicles with, with a number of different classes of anti-tank weapons, but the reliability of it hitting a part of the tank where it's going to achieve a, a sufficient effect is considerably reduced by that combination of TTPs plus some uh, physical alterations to the vehicles. Um, having said that, a lot of the things the Russians are doing in that regard constrain how they can use the equipment. Um, and so, you know, it's not like they've solved the problem. Um, it's just that they have significantly improved their survivability uh, outside of about 1400 meters. You mentioned that the the fighting has been a bit more static. I think everybody who's been watching closely over the winter certainly will know that. Static fighting, though, means establishing defensive lines, defensive positions, obstacles, minefields. And this is where, you know, engineers really enter the equation. How has the performance of uh, Russian military engineers been? Highly competent um, and highly competent throughout the conflict. You know, um, I mean, people highlighted things like their failed um, gap crossing uh, over Seversky Donetsk uh, River. Uh, but... The bridging part of that was fine, right? Uh, the Russians can rapidly emplace assault bridges uh, and pontoon bridging. They've got plenty of it. They do it correctly uh, for the most part. Um, their defensive positions are very doctrinal, as in they follow Soviet doctrine or, or it's barely changed, but they do it quickly. Uh, infantry units dig in by hand within 12 hours of occupying a position and they continue to improve their defenses uh, if they're not under attack pretty much continuously. Um, first defense line is usually foxholes, and so you have a series of overlapping platoon positions. Second defense line will, is where force protection engineering comes in, um, and that will basically be formed trenches with strong points, uh, usually concrete reinforced firing positions. Um, again, built around terrain and ridge lines so that they've got good overlapping sight lines. And then in front of that, you will have these 700 meters to 1200 meter. Uh, obstacle belts of uh, tank ditches, tank traps, wire track entanglements, and mines. Um, and the emplacement of mines is is very extensive. Um, it's also that these are complex minefields made up of anti-tank and anti-personnel mines, and the anti-personnel mines usually have multiple initiation mechanisms. So it's a very, very serious obstacle. And the other point is that it's it's covered by UAV reconnaissance and EW reconnaissance and by visual reconnaissance, um, and that is supported by fire. And so if you slow down trying to breach these lines, then you are going to come under sustained 120 mortar fire, usually. I mean, there's other things that can engage you, but that will be the backbone of what's going to land on you. What about the air domain? Aviation, uh, to be sure, but also air defense. How has the fight in uh, and for the air domain evolved over the course of the war? Uh, so the, the Russians would have been able to inflict very heavy losses at a number of points if they'd thrown in the Air Force uh, and taken much more risk with their aircraft. But they couldn't sustain those loss rates for very long. Um, and they certainly couldn't sustain the losses of pilots. 
um, and the morale of the force if they had if they had decided to do that repeatedly. Uh, I think it's important in that context to emphasize the significance of the the interrelationship between their air defense ground based air defenses and their defensive counter air capability as uh, critical to their defense planning assumptions against other threats, including NATO. Um, and so they don't particularly want to have that force overly attrited. And what that has led to is, as you say, unwillingness to expose themselves to risk, sitting high above their own meses and above their own lines. Um, however, they have been adapting in how they can support the, the main effort. One of them is a continual process of adapt testing and adaptation in terms of how they layer effects and synchronize effects for air-launched cruise missiles. Um, and ballistic missiles and using integrating UAV strikes into that. Um, lots of different techniques for uh, you know continuously pr proving as long different routes, uh, mixing ISR UAVs in as well, um, and also having multiple potential points of initiation through through putting lots of aircraft in the air and then prioritizing mass along a small number of corridors for actually where they track the missiles from. Um, so long range strike, there's plenty of test and evaluation. Um, and then tactically we're seeing lofting being the main effort in terms of delivery of effect. Um, the, the first one being S8 rockets lofted at very low altitude with about 12, up to 12 clicks range. It is effective enough if you're using it against a forming up point to be very disruptive. Um, and then the other is lobbing fab 500 bombs with glide kits on them, which they are systematically converting those bombs for, for glide kits, usually launched by SU-35S from medium altitude. It's a very large explosive. You don't need to be that accurate. Um, and they'll likely be refining the, the tables of when they let go, when they release that weapon um, and the glide kits themselves. Um, and they have a huge stockpile of these bombs. So that's a concern um, as to whether they start using those capabilities not in small numbers but in very large numbers at the moment it's harassing kind of all over the place if they concentrate it th this is an issue um and then the other is just that continual use of of aircraft for defensive counter air and look down capability uh using r-37s to hold ukrainian aviation and the ukrainian air force at, at risk uh which is Reasonably effective, although to be honest, it's the air defense laydown that means that the uh, Ukrainians don't have very much freedom to operate. You know, we've been we've been looking for lessons, especially the U.S. Army, as we transition from kind of twenty years of of low intensity conflict and stability operations in Iraq and Afghanistan to large scale combat operations, uh, and and kind of readiness to. Uh, to confront a, a peer, near-peer military force on the battlefield. One of the things that, that quickly became obvious, um, you know, I guess there are things that we sort of took for granted, uh, you know, camouflage and, and the ability to jump talk, basically break down tactical operation centers and move to avoid being targeted. Even before the invasion, we were starting to recognize some of these things. You know, um, retired General John Abizade was a was a U.S. defense envoy advising the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense on a variety of reforms, and he described the fighting that was taking place in the Donbass region for years uh, before the invasion as trench warfare with drones and cyber. It sort of, you know, that description sort of connotes this back to the future quality with, with you know, some of the old and some of the new. 
How would you break that down in terms of what you've seen over the past 15 months? What's the balance of, you know, a reversion to things that are sort of time-tested and proven in wars of the past and this integration of, of, of new technologies, new things? So it's definitely a blending of old and new. Uh, and there are plenty of old things like tube artillery, which um, you need and you need in quantity. Uh, and its lethality has not diminished. Um, and of course, that has a whole load of shaping implications, including, as you say, the, the paramount importance of digging uh, as soon as you go static, if you're infantry. Um, but firstly, there are very significant new elements. Electronic warfare, UAS, integrated at a very tactical level. Uh, the fact that nowhere is safe on the battlefield, there is no rear area security. Um, those are definitely changes. And then it's, I think, important to reflect on the fact that there are elements of the old systems that have changed as well as a result of their interaction with new systems. So what do I mean by that? Um, if we take artillery as a good example, you can now achieve mass precision with actually quite inaccurate artillery because of the, the live ISR that you can, you can get. And therefore, if someone's in a trench, it, it's not actually the thing that's going to make them survivable. Uh, the thing that makes them survivable is the ambiguity about which bit of the trench they're in um, and, and their ability to move along it and conceal themselves. The other thing I'd say is that in the modern uh, saturated ISR environment, concealment is a very, very temporary condition. Uh, there is a, a hard timeline that you're on before you will be detected. Um, however, you can certainly create ambiguity. Um, for example, you can find an awful lot of vehicles from space, but determining whether a vehicle is destroyed, uh, damaged, or functional is very, very difficult, especially if it's under a camouflage net. Um, and so you can create a lot of false positives. You can hide in the noise. But a lot of those measures require actively doing something, whereas concealment in the past was much more about not having tracks, right? Um, what's a good example? If you drive backwards into a woodblock with a vehicle, you know, and there are track marks that lead to that spot, it's pretty easy to spot. If there are track marks everywhere, it's not. And so what you end up needing to do is very proactively generate the noise in which to um, degrade the efficiency of the enemy's legacy systems. Uh, and I think that that's a real difference. On your point about headquarters, it's actually another good example. No, the, the critical thing is not being able to displace your headquarters quickly. Um, that's, that's useful uh, in terms of, yeah, if you omit, then you do need to collapse and move. But if your headquarters looks anything like a NATO headquarters from the 1980s, uh, or, and certainly 1990s or 2000s, then it doesn't matter how quickly it moves, it's still not survivable because it's huge. Um, and what we're actually looking at is very disaggregated headquarters. Because on the one hand, when you look at the range of effects that you're needing to synchronize at the moment, you do need a larger staff with a lot more expertise in it. So integration of space-based capability is not something you can do with two people. Um, at the same time, you can't concentrate them irrespective of how quickly the whole thing can move. And therefore, you need to actually function as a disaggregated headquarters, which requires a different way of working and a different set of TTPs. Um, and in that environment, um, it's about using 
old tools differently because of the layered persistent long-range threat um, rather than just reverting to old tools and techniques. Um, actually, another good example of why displacing quickly rather than being subterranean and being in too small a packet to justify the kind of munition that can broach that site um, is probably more the way to go, uh, is that if you if you move quickly, what will come after you is a Lancet. Um, and GMTI allows you to track a moving vehicle from a location. So if you've detected a vehicle and it starts to displace, then you can use GMTI, you can keep tracking it, you can send a loitering munition after it, and we see Ukrainian howitzers getting hit with lancets as they displace from their firing positions um, for precisely that reason. Well, to sort of wrap up, I guess, um, I kind of want to zoom out and ask, you know, the, the so what question. One of the one of the conclusions that you reach in the report is that from the standpoint of of the international support that Ukraine has received, the sort of focus is shifting or should shift uh, from providing you know, key systems to really emphasizing training and, and, and training on tactics and, and how those systems are are, are employed. I wonder if you can kind of explain why, what, you know, why that's the conclusion you reached after spending all this time really closely studying Russian adaptation. Yeah, so we didn't spend all this time studying Russian adaptation, basically. Uh, we spent a lot of it joining Ukrainian units, doing unit training, rehearsals for operations, etc. And spent plenty of time talking through how they do their business and observing it. Uh, for lots of reasons, we were not going to write about that. Um, and so we don't cover in the report whether we think that the Ukrainians are in a position to be able to overcome the challenges that we set out. Um, that's one of the unfortunate aspects of, of you know, writing about an ongoing conflict is that we have to be very, very careful about what we make public. Um, however, if we are talking about putting the Ukrainian armed forces on a sustainable basis so that they can continue to force generate units that are able to overcome these problems, then there are clear priorities. And what I would suggest is that some of those priorities do require equipment, um, EW baselines, uh, counter battery radar, um, the ability to uh, lift Russian fires when the Russian, when the Ukrainians try and move. Those are very important capability problems, but for the vast majority of cases, it's much more important that there is um, the rationalization of what's provided, so we consolidate around fewer systems, continuity of ammunition and spares, and then a training pipeline for how they are used, and in particular, basic skills. You know, the Ukrainian military went from 150,000 ground forces to 700,000. Um, you don't have that many junior officers and people who are, are trained to do infantry assaults at tempo. And when you're conducting offensive operations, those are critical skill sets. And if we look at the, the training that is provided to the Ukrainian armed forces, uh, a lot of it is individual training. Some of it is collective training. A significant proportion of it is technical training on systems employment. What is largely missing is what we would the equivalent to what would be junior Brecken in the UK. I'm not sure what the US equivalent is, but it's essentially um, your platoon and company uh, commanders uh, and NCOs. People who can you know, maintain rapid tempo of advance uh, 
while assaulting a position because they know how to do coordination of managers of management fires with movement, that kind of stuff. The Ukrainians have people who can do that, uh, but they don't have an infinite supply of them, and it's not something that their current unit generation system can can spit out at a reliable rate. And so if you want the Ukrainians to be able to conduct offensive operations at an acceptable rate of loss or a sustainable rate of loss, then we need to shift to make sure that we have a really joined up approach to providing a training pipeline to deliver core competencies. Um, you know, that that's really what will determine, I think, the outcome of a lot of these engagements, because a lot of fighting in Ukraine is, is at company scale, even if you have even up to core level shaping and enablement to uh, sort of bound that operation. A lot of the decisive element of whether or not the operation succeeds or fails will come down to a company action. Um, and so we need to get that bit right, you know, real focus on the basics. How do you do reconnaissance of a minefield? That's a really challenging task. The Ukrainians have very, very competent military engineers. They're very busy. There aren't that many of them, right? How do we train more? That, that's a really important question. Um, it's a question that consumes much more time, I think, um, than this weapon system, that weapon system, you know, because ultimately there isn't a silver bullet at this point. Well, I think that's as good a point as any to uh, to sort of wrap up. Thanks again for joining me. Uh, it's been a really fascinating conversation. The full report itself is also uh, fascinating. And, and uh, again, it's not hard to find online, but I'll make sure a link is included in the in the episode notes, the show description. For any listeners who are interested, in it, I'd, I'd, I'd highly recommend giving it a read. It gets into a lot of detail on some of the things that we've talked about today, but also some of the other things that, that we didn't have time to touch on. So, Jack, thank you again. I, uh, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, a pleasure. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, research, and more that we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thanks again.